0: Well, why don't you grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're actually going to take a small break from 1 Peter. Thank you. We'll be back with 1 Peter next week, and then we'll take another break from 1 Peter to, to celebrate the birth of uh, the Lord. So we'll uh, start celebrating Christmas. I'm excited about celebrating Christmas. It seems like Houston is really excited about celebrating Christmas. How many of you saw Christmas decorations? Like three weeks ago, they were putting up Christmas decorations, which I love. I mean, if we can celebrate something, it might as well be Christmas, even if not everybody understands what Christmas is all about. So we're going to take a little break from First Peter this week um, because these are interesting days that we're living in in the life of our church. They're exciting days, but they're interesting. You know, so I think we're just now reaching double digits in the number of times that we've gathered together. It doesn't seem like that. It seems like we've always been something, but we're only now reaching ten times or so. I haven't done the math, but ten times we've gathered to worship together, something like that. And if you're doing the math right now, come and correct me later. Um, but we're right in the very, very beginning But I feel like we have established the mechanical functions of a church, that if you look at our church, you would say, okay, yeah, that looks like a church. It feels like a church. We gather on Sunday mornings to worship together, to pray together, to sit underneath the Word of God together. We gather during the week in smaller uh, groups and community groups all over the city so that we can build meaningful relationships. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to make this place feel like home for you is if you have meaningful relationships here. If you don't have any meaningful relationships here, it will just be like passing blank faces uh, every single Sunday and so we've got the big piece on Sunday morning we've got the smaller pieces uh, during the week and then we're serving and we're serving like crazy I mean even this week this is a cool these are cool stories to tell even this week in the last eight days or so we have jumped in with uh, Gracewood which is the um, the home for single moms and their families uh, a group of 40 or 50 went last Saturday to uh, to help clean up some space that they were giving so that, given so that they could expand some of their ministry territory uh, and then earlier this week a group group of women went and held a teacher appreciation lunch at an elementary school, a public elementary school here in the neighborhood of our church just to say to these teachers, we know you're here, we believe in you, we want to encourage you, we want to feed you a really, really good lunch. And so that was an incredibly cool experience and and teachers are still um, getting back to us saying, I can't believe you guys did that, I can't believe your church did that, that you remembered us and you, you wanted to come and encourage us. Um, and we're going to do that some more, those kinds of things. And then yesterday, another group of 20, 30, 40 uh, or something went and put Christmas lights back up at Gracewood so that the children that are living there in the home uh, with, the, uh, with their moms can come home, just like your children might come home and go, oh my gosh, look at my amazing house decorated for Christmas. We wanted them to have that experience too. So we're serving. And not just are we serving internationally, we're serving our neighborhood. So we're meeting together on Sunday mornings in a large group way. We're doing some smaller group, community group stuff during the week, and we're serving. Those are some of the mechanical functions of a church. But when we were dreaming this thing up, nobody was dreaming about the mechanical functions of a church. You know, nobody was saying, you know what I'd really like to do? Is I'd like to sing some songs. Let's start a new church so we can put out signs and tables and gather people in a room. We didn't dream about the mechanical functions of a church. We dreamed things and prayed things like, God, we are asking you to come over us like a wave. God, we're asking you as we gather together that you would fill up the room with your very presence. We're asking you for supernatural things. And at the end of the day, that's the kind of church that we want to be. We don't want to just be a church that has mechanical functions and processes and looks like a church and acts like a church. We want to be a family that's plugged into the supernatural life of the Holy Son of God. That's what we want to be. And to be that kind of church... You got to do more spiritual things than you do physical things. You got to do more supernatural things than you do mechanical things. You got to do more spiritual things than you do process type of things. And so now that we feel like we've got a rhythm and you can count that every Sunday somebody will be here. That's important when you're starting a church is that the people out there know, are those people gonna be there next week? Yes, we're gonna be there next week. We're gonna worship together. We're gonna have a good opportunity to take care of your kids and deposit the word of God in them. We've established some of the mechanical functions which are important. But now I wanna get to the real stuff, the fun stuff, the, the God stuff, the Jesus stuff. And so what I'm suggesting and asking is that as a church, we would spend December 5th through 9th, which is a Monday through Friday, skipping lunch that week to fast together as a church. That all over the city, hundreds and hundreds of people that call Bayou City Fellowship home would skip lunch Monday through Friday, and somewhere in the city, you would pray instead of eat. You would sit underneath the Word of God, read the Word of God instead of eat, that you would meditate on the Word of God, and then at least one of those days, we'll gather in different parts of the city to pray together. Because what we're going to see from the Word is that God has ordained that fasting has a powerful effect. You know, fasting is one of those things that um, w- if we went around this morning and said, what do you think, fasting good or bad? Well, you would say, well, it's good. It's in the Bible. It's good. Uh, but it's not something that we have a lot of experience with. You know, in fact, if I ask you when was the last time that you fasted, most of us would say, uh, well, let me see. There was that one. T- never. I have never fasted. You know, I mean, I did fast one time. I because I was really busy and I didn't get to eat lunch, so I just waited until dinner. That's not really fasting, you know. When I was in college, I wanted to fast, and and so I, I did more than what we were, I'm suggesting we do, which is just lunch. Uh, I dedicated a Monday through Friday to, to not eat. Uh, so no breakfast, lunch, or dinner, um, because I'd read about it in the Bible, and I thought, well, if, if Jesus did it, then maybe I should try it too. And so Monday and Tuesday were were hard because I was hungry but they were really invigorating you know man I can't believe this I'm fasting I'm like I'm like Jesus right now Jesus fasted I'm fasting he fasted 40 days I'm fasting five days but I'm fasting like Jesus Monday and Tuesday was man it was it was hard but it was really good Wednesday and Thursday I was really grumpy but it was really good you know Friday came around and my fast was ending around lunchtime or just right after lunchtime and I was so unbelievably hungry Um, you know ideally when you fast for that long you kind of want to come out of it kind of slow You know, kind of gentle, maybe some soups, maybe some salad. I was in college. I was dumb. I'm still dumb. I'm not in college anymore, but I was dumb. And so I went to Denny's because at Denny's you can get breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same time, anytime you want. And I had been skipping breakfast, lunch, and dinner for five days, and so I thought, what better place to go than to Denny's where I can make up for all the food that I have not eaten, And so this is, I tell you how hungry I was. I went to Denny's by myself. I mean, I don't know if you go to Denny's by yourself. I've never been to Denny's by myself, but that's how hungry I was. And so I walk in, I say, table for one. They sent me somewhere and I say, I want this for breakfast and I want this for lunch and I want this for dinner. And I want it right on my table right now. And I sat at that table and until I had eaten every bit of that food. So that's not ideal not the goal. But here's what I did learn as just a kind of an ignorant college student. When it comes to fasting, the spiritual reward is worth the physical cost. The spiritual reward is worth the physical pain because trust me, it is not easy to skip a meal and it's definitely not easy to skip five meals. But God has ordained fasting to have a powerful effect and I want to put it into play here in the life of our church. And here's why. And here's what I want us to be praying about and thinking about as we're skipping lunch to pray together as a church. When I was a boy, my, my parents sent me off to church camp. Church camp is like regular camp, but at the end of the night, you do church stuff. And so every night at the end of the camp day, we would gather in this metal building that looked exactly like a garage. I told you I grew up in Missouri, so we're not super sophisticated up there. And so we would meet together in this garage-type building, metal building, and there would be a 100 or so um, older boys, and we would do like a worship service. So similar to what we do this morning, there would be a music time, and then there would be a, a teaching time. And one of the nights, I don't remember exactly which night it was, whether it was the first night or the last night. But one of the nights, my group, we were sitting on the very back row. So I was on the very back row in a metal folding chair. And this, the music part was over and this man gets up on the stage. And if he walked into this church today, I would not be able to pick him out. I just remember a couple of things. I remember that he had a red mustache. And um, I don't know why I remember that, but he had a red mustache. And the other thing that I remember is when he opened up his Bible, something began to happen to me. My heart started to beat a million miles an hour, and suddenly I was totally tuned out to what was going on on the stage. And I was just in this little bubble in the back row in a metal folding chair. And I just had this sense as just even a boy that something was broken in my relationship with God, that something was not right. And I had grown up in church, so I had a little bit of background information. And so all that background information kind of started to come into the foreground. And all the pieces that I had learned growing up in church kind of all came together for me. And so in the back row, in a metal folding chair in Mount Vernon, Missouri, I start thinking about my relationship with God for maybe the first or second time in my entire life. And I knew something was wrong with it. And I knew because of that background information, the problem was my sin. Listen, I was well acquainted with the fact that I was a sinner. Nobody needed to tell me that I was a sinner. I knew that I was a liar, just like you probably know that you're a liar. I knew that I was prideful and arrogant, just like you probably know that you are prideful and arrogant. I knew all those things, and I knew from the Bible that my sin had created the problem between God and I, that God was holy and I was a sinner. But I also knew from that background information that even though I was a sinner and I was well acquainted, acquainted with that fact. I knew that God loved me still. In fact, the Bible said that God demonstrated his love for me that even while I was still in the midst of being a sinner, he sent Jesus to die for me. And that because Jesus offered up his life on the cross and through his resurrection, forgiveness could come to me in the back row of a building in a metal folding chair. And I wanted that. And I wanted the eternal life that came through the forgiveness of Jesus. And so I didn't know exactly what to say. I mean, and who even knows what was happening on the stage? They could have been clowns up on the stage by this time. I don't have any idea. All I know is that I'm on the back row, and I think, well, maybe the best thing to say to Jesus is what I had read somebody say to Jesus in the Bible. And so I closed my eyes as tight as I could, and I said, Jesus, I'm a sinner save me. Just whispered it under my breath. And I really, really wanted him to hear me. And so I just said it over and over and over again. Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. And somehow I knew when I got up out of that folding chair, what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And somehow I just had this assurance drop deep down in my heart that what had been broken in my relationship with God was now fixed. That I had received the forgiveness of Jesus. That I was born again. That I, what Ephesians chapter two says, I had been dead in my sins up until that moment, but God had made me alive in Jesus. And here's why I want to fast as a church, because I want as many people as possible to have that same opportunity here in this church. I want hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were previously dead to come alive in Jesus' name. I want hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people to be born again. I want those who are far off to be brought near. I want those who are not um, sons to be sons. I want those who are not daughters to become daughters. And I know you want that same thing. That this would be a place where every kind of person can come and find Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the same way we have found Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I know that you want to stand before God one day and not just say I was a really mature Christian, but I'm here alone. I know you want to say I gave all the faith that I had and I was as mature as I could be in partnership with the Holy Spirit. But my mom is here and my dad is here and my grandma's here and my grandpa's here and my friends are here and my coworkers are here and that stranger on the bus is here and that guy on the airplane's here and that guy I met at the Walmart, he's here too. We're all here and we're going for Jesus. I know you want that opportunity and I want that opportunity. So what I'm saying is let's fast together because God has ordained fasting to have a powerful effect. And I wanna show you from the word of God. So Matthew chapter four. You know in the Bible there is lots of different motivation for fasting and just so we're on the the same page fasting is abstaining from food and replacing food with a spiritual purpose. So it's skipping lunch but it's not just skipping lunch because you're busy or just because you don't want to eat. It's skipping lunch and replacing that with prayer, with reading the word of God, with encouraging other people. So it's, it's abstaining from food and replacing it with a spiritual purpose. So the point of Fasting is not just the abstaining from food part. You know? So some of you are thinking like, okay, I, I want to lose a little weight after Thanksgiving. This is going to work out nice, December 5th through 9th. So I'm skipping, skipping lunch. That's five lunches. That's maybe 1,000 calories a day in my current eating style. So that's 5,000 calories. I think that's two pounds worth of weight loss during the fasting. I'm in for the fasting, Pastor. Let's do the fasting. No, that's not what it's about. It's not abstaining from food. It's abstaining from food and replacing it with a spiritual purpose. Plus, I promise you, you'll gain all that weight back. As soon as the fast is over, because you'll go to Denny's for dinner. <laughs> and there are lots of different motivations for fasting in the Bible. Um, people fast to, to show the seriousness of their intercession, meaning they really, really want God to answer this prayer. And so not only do they pray, they fast alongside of it. We see fasting in the Word of God um, uh, for... Um, Repentance, when people would repent, they would fast. We see fasting in the scripture when people mourn, when they're sad, and we see fasting just for the purpose of worship, just out of pure devotion for God. And then Matthew chapter 4 gives us two reasons in in the the story of Jesus um, that I want to come around this morning. So, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And he was hungry. Now the 40 days and 40 nights, that's a reference back to the children of Israel, the, the people of Israel, in between their rescue from Egypt uh, in slavery to their, their deliverance in the promised land. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert. And so now Jesus is in the desert. The children of Israel were completely dependent on God in that time of, of being in the desert. And Jesus here, he's um, expressing his dependence On God, too. So, what I want you to see, the first thing that I really love you to write down if you're able to this morning is that fasting has a way of consecrating and preparing us. Fasting has a way of consecrating us and preparing us. Jesus is in a transition moment here in his ministry and life. You know, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. We're well acquainted probably with his birth. If you know anything about Jesus, if the people at your workplace know anything about Jesus, it's probably the story of his birth. We're well acquainted with that. And then most of us kind of pick back up uh, with his, you know, public ministries, going out there preaching, he's teaching, he's calling disciples, those things. But those in-between two things, you know, we don't have that much information about. In fact, all we really know about Jesus in between his birth and when we see him about the age of 30 starting to be public in his ministry is that he was growing in favor with god and man so as he got bigger as a man he grew in favor both with god and with man so we're catching him in a transition period Um, he's just been baptized in matthew chapter 3 and now after his baptism he goes into the wilderness to fast so this is this transition moment for him and we see that in the scripture moses is in a time of fasting when he receives the ten commandments So the brand new thing, the law of God coming to the people of God. Moses is fasting when he receives that. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah learns that the city of Jerusalem, the walls have been torn down and there are people living in Jerusalem and so they're in great danger. And so he's broken about that and then he fasts and out of his fasting he goes to Jerusalem to to lead the rebuilding effort of the wall. And so Jesus is getting ready to start his public ministry and here he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now I want you to think about the two different choices before Jesus in this moment. So his public ministry really hasn't started. He hasn't really started preaching or teaching or gathering people. He's got two choices. He's the Messiah. He knows that he's the Messiah at this point. He has two options in his culture. The first option is to be a political Messiah. Everyone in his culture, everyone in Israel is expecting a Messiah at some point, but most of them are expecting a political figure who would rise to power, have great fame and influence, and through that fame and influence would somehow remove the Roman Empire from power in Israel. And when the Roman Empire would leave, the Israelites, the Jewish people, could rule themselves again, and then they would have a relationship with God the way their forefathers did in the Old Testament. So that is what everyone is expecting a political Messiah to come and lead the people against Rome. And so that choice is in front of him. He can do that. That's what everyone is expecting. And listen, I think Jesus would have made a fabulous political Messiah. He was charismatic, he could draw a crowd, he could make a speech. And not only could he draw a crowd and make a speech, he could win deep, committed followers. I think he would have made a great politician. So that path is in front of him. Or he can take the other path. And the other path is what it says here. He could be led by the Spirit. And if he's led by the Spirit, the path of Messiah that he's going to take is not one of a political Messiah, but a suffering Messiah. Messiah. And there's going to be great cost at the end of that path. And so these two choices are in front of him. And those two choices are always in front of you and me. Every day you wake up, you have at least two paths in front of you. You can take the normal, expected path that everyone else living around you is taking. It is a well-traveled path. It's wide. It's easy. It's smooth. You can always take that path or you can personally every day wake up and take the path of being led by the Spirit of God. And listen, we have those two choices as a church. As a church, we can take the the normal, expected path where we end up, we start strong, but we end up building this thing based on human logic, human wisdom, human experience. And we have enough charismatic, powerful, influential people that we could probably pull it off. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. And listen, I don't want to be the kind of church that is filled with the flesh, filled with our own thinking, our human wisdom, our human understanding and do human fleshly centered things and just call it the spirit. Just because you do something that's spiritual in nature doesn't mean it's not in the flesh. And if we build our church in the flesh, we will give birth to the flesh no matter what we want to do. But I want to be the kind of church that's led by the Spirit. Listen, it's more exciting to be led by the Spirit, but it's also a little bit messier. It's a little bit more raw. It's a little bit more, seriously, we're going to do that. That's what we're going to do. That's the kind of church we're going to be. Can we not do this? Can we not do this? Let's put these pieces together and organize it like this. No, I want to be a church that's led by the Spirit, and I think that's what you want to do. And fasting has a way of solidifying that choice to take the path led by the Spirit and not the well-traveled, expected path. It has a way of clarifying those decisions for us. Because what happens, and just really quickly, when you fast, you wake up to your dependence. You wake up to your dependence on God. See, every one of us this this morning, we're totally dependent on God. Totally. Totally. Whether you believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus, the, the hardest core atheist in the world right now is as dependent on God as I am up here unpacking the word of God. He and I are both together completely 100% dependent on God. And just to prove it, I want you to tell yourself right now, and this is, I'm, this is kind of risking something, but I want you to tell, your, tell yourself to make your heart stop beating. Just, just try it. Just humor me. This house. This is how confident I feel in this right here. Because if I'm wrong, then we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> all right, one, two, three. Tell your heart to stop beating. Are we all still here? We good? <laughs> of course you are. You know why your heart didn't stop when you told your heart to stop? Because you're not the one holding you together. We're being held together, yeah, by nature, whatever. But nature is being held together by the very word of God. And fasting has a way of waking us up to that reality. Because at some point in in that lunch that you skip, you're going to go, man, I really need some food. And then you're going to remember, I do need food eventually. But I need Jesus more. And Jesus is going to say in just a second that man doesn't live on bread Alone And fasting wakes us up to the reality that we are totally dependent on him, which then leads to an incredible amount of humility. An incredible amount of humility when you and I come to terms with the fact that we're not being held together today by our very word but by his very word. It causes a a humility to be birthed in us, that we aren't as self-reliant as we thought we were, that my satisfaction isn't somehow ultimate. Jackson was sick from school a couple of, uh, I guess it was last week, and Amanda was out of town, and so um, he was home with me. And it was one of those situations where he started the morning sick, but then by like lunchtime, he was totally fine. You know, don't you hate that as a parent? It's like, now you're being rewarded for staying home from school, you know? And so we had to go to the Target to get some basic necessities. And so as we're going into the Target, I say, listen, you're home from school sick. This is not like a fun day with Daddy. You're not getting any toys. I don't care what you say, what you ask for. In fact, don't ask for any toys or anything, not even toys, whatever you want. Don't ask for it because this is not a trip to reward you. We need bananas. That's why we're in the Target right now, so we he needs some bananas. And so he's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, And, and so we're, we do our thing in Target. But we have to cut through the toy s- section. And I felt bad, you know. I was like leading him into temptation. But I, <laughs> I felt bad. But we're rolling through the toy section. And he's, his little eyes are just like staring at them. And, you know, they're all laid out for Christmas in a very appealing way. That's so tricky of them, you know. And you can see in his mind this little battle of I really want those things but I'm not supposed to ask for them. <laughs> Should I ask for them? What are the consequences going to be if I do ask for them? Is daddy bluffing or is he being for real right now? And you can see his little mind working. And all he says is man, those toys are sure making me want them. <laughs> I think he's going to be a, a politician, maybe, because that was like, I'm asking for a toy, but not in a way that you can pin me down on it right here. I, th- I thought about that over and over. I mean, is that not a, a, an amazing summary of what it's like to be a human in 2011? Just you're driving in your car and you're going, man, I want that and I want that and I want that and I want that. Not, not even, you don't have to go into a store. You just got to drive through somebody else's neighborhood. I want that and I want that and I want that. This is part of our human nature. But fasting has this way of waking us up to our dependence and it creates this humility in us, which helps us to understand that our satisfaction, it's not ultimate. That the point of all of this, the whole universe doesn't funnel its way down to whether or not I am completely satisfied. I like to think that it does. But this is not about me. And it's not about you. There's a greater reality and fasting plugs us into that greater reality. And then my favorite part about fasting, according to the word of God, is it opens us up to greater receptivity to the activity of God. Somehow we're more aware of his work and presence around us. We see that in, in the scripture. In Acts chapter 13, it says the leaders of the Antioch church are fasting and praying together. And it's there as they're fasting and praying that God says to them, I want you to set apart Saul or Paul and Barnabas. I'm going to send them out. It was in that fasting that God spoke. In Daniel chapter 9 and 10, I just encourage you to go home and read chapter D- Daniel chapter 9 and 10. That's some crazy stuff that happens in those two chapters. But just a little summary. Daniel is in this time of fasting and he sees a vision vision of a pre-incarnate Jesus, meaning Jesus before Bethlehem, a pre-incarnate glorious Jesus, and he passes out. You know who wakes him up? An angel wakes him up. And then the angel not only wakes him up, can you imagine being woken up by an angel? An angel wakes that dude up and then tells him about this spiritual battle that that angel had on the way to meet Daniel. That's crazy, but it's in this time of fasting that the curtain gets peeled back for Daniel, and he sees some things that very few human eyes have ever seen story of Elijah in the Old Testament Elijah is in this period of fasting you remember he goes up on the mountain and he needs to hear from God and there's a there's a, a great wind but God isn't in the wind and there's a earthquake and God's not in the earthquake and then there's a fire and God isn't speaking in the fire then how does he speak he, speak, he speaks in a gentle whisper A still small voice but all of that happens in a context of Elijah fasting fasting has this way of opening us up to the activity of God and it's no wonder because fasting literally means to empty yourself and anytime you and I start emptying ourselves of us it clears the channels for our communication with God. Sometimes I don't hear from God the way I want to hear from God. He's not speaking to me the way I want him to speak to me because the channel of communication is all cluttered up with me. What I want, what I need, what I think is best. And anytime we start emptying ourselves of ourselves, his voice seems to emerge in a powerful way. So Jesus fasts for 40 days at the beginning. And that that fasting has a way of solidifying the kind of Messiah he's going to be to which path he's going to take to fulfill the call of God in his life. So Matthew chapter four, verse three. It says, Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to satisfy himself with his power. Jesus is hungry, and so Satan says, why don't you just use your power to turn these rocks into bread? Just use your own ability as the Son of God to just serve yourself. And Jesus says, I I need to live on more than bread alone. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Satan takes him up on top of the temple and then just he's tempting him to use his power for tricks. Use his power to demonstrate his power and authority as the son of God. He just throw yourself off the building. And the Bible says, and so Satan is even using the Bible. The Bible says that angels will come and rescue you. You won't have any harm come to you. And Jesus says, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Verse 8 Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. So now what Satan is tempting Jesus is to take a shortcut. To take a shortcut. Because if Jesus walks the the path of being led by the Spirit the way God wants him to, it's going to, at the end of the day, result in fame and glory and power and honor for Jesus. That's what Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow and every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But what Satan is saying is, listen, get the same thing, but don't do it the hard way. I'm the prince of the power of the air. I'm the God of this age. If you just worship me, I'll make sure that everyone else worships you. Isn't that why you're here, Jesus, so that your name can be lifted high? Listen, we'll lift your name high, just you worship me right now. And Jesus says, go away, Satan, for it is written. See, sometimes you don't want to argue with the devil, you just want to tell him to leave. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and immediately angels came and began to serve him. Now that story is obviously used in a lot of different ways. It encourages us when we're in temptation to use the word of God. And you've probably heard that sermon before. I'll probably preach that sermon before. I'll try to wait a few weeks before I bring this passage back. But, um, um, but I want you to think of this story in the context of fasting and what, fasting, what role fasting might have played in Jesus' spiritual warfare against the devil. Because I think God has ordained... Fasting to have a powerful effect, and part of that powerful effect is a powerful weapon to use in spiritual warfare. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9 really quickly. Mark chapter 9. You know, we are in a spiritual war. We talk about that and reference that almost every single week. Ephesians chapter 6 says there's a spiritual war going on all around us between the forces of our God and the forces of the enemy of our souls. Satan, that battle is, is raging all around us. And, and in fact, Ephesians chapter 6, according to biblical scholars, may even list a hierarchy, an order of uh, demonic forces of evil. There are uh, rulers, and then there are authorities, and there's are powers of, powers of darkness, and then there are spiritual forces of evil. And all that is to say is that there's an organized attack against the church. There's an organized attack against you. Why? Because Satan hates you? Yes. But he ultimately hates God and he hates the God in you. He hates the Jesus in you. So he really wants to come against God and a way to do that is to come against you. And so the, the spiritual forces of evil will come against you. And have come against you, and maybe even now are coming against you. I told you last week that Amanda was in South America two weeks ago, and, and she was in a, in a, uh, she was going with Compassion International. I don 't know if you've had the great opportunity to learn about Compassion International, and we 're actually going to partner with them in our church in a really cool way, and we 'll unveil all that out in time. But um, compassion, through compassion, you can sponsor children, and for I think, 40 dollars a month, you can sponsor a child in, in places all around the world, and it puts that 40 dollars into the hands of their family. Family, and it keeps that family essentially from eventually becoming an orphan. And it's all done through the local church. And it's an, it's an incredibly powerful ministry. And so Amanda had the opportunity to go with a team of ladies with Compassion International to go to Ecuador in South America and just raise awareness about what Compassion was doing. And then hopefully people would, would sponsor more kids. And so, um, the, you know, the, the most important tool that Amanda had to bring was her computer. Because she would have these experiences with compassion during the day and this team of ladies would get into the hotel room and write about it, post it on the internet and people would be inspired and want to sponsor kids. So of course, which piece of equipment broke as soon as she got there? Her computer. Her computer is pretty new, never had any problems with it whatsoever and just all of a sudden, it doesn't work. And it was so clear to us that that was just a scheme of the enemy to prevent... Amanda from fulfilling the call that God had given her for that week. Thankfully, he wouldn't accomplish that in any way. But that was a scheme set against her. Because that's what the spiritual forces of evil do. They come against us. Now, am I saying every time your computer breaks that it's the devil? No. No. I saying every time your air conditioning breaks it's the devil no it's maybe that you just need a new one and it's old and we live in Houston you have to use it a lot and it wears out maybe that's the reality so it's not that everything bad that happens is from the devil and everything good that happens is from God it's not anything like that but make no mistake the spiritual forces of evil are coming against you whether you know it or not and fasting has a powerful effect in that battle Mark chapter 9 kind of tells two stories and I'll just summarize them really quick. You can look at them and, uh, and read them later. But Jesus is on top of this mountain with Peter, James, and John. And on top of this mountain, Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed before their eyes. And, and they see him, clothed in glory, clothed in glory. And then he's sitting there with Moses and Elijah who had been dead for a really, 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 really long time. And Jesus um, is having a conversation with these two very important dead men in the Jewish culture. And then God opens up to heaven and speaks out of it and says, uh, the Father speaks out of it and says, you know, this is my son, listen to him. And So that's happening on the mountain. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, the other disciples, uh, they're having another experience. This father has brought his son to the other disciples looking for Jesus because the son of this father has been possessed by a demon. And this demon is just causing his son all kinds of trouble. And so he asked the disciples to cast out the demon. Well, they can't. They had been able to cast out demons before, but but they can't cast this one out for some reason. And so Jesus comes down off the mountain and these two stories kind of collide together. And so Jesus says, hey, what's going on? Because there's kind of a commotion. The father says to Jesus, I brought my, my son to you to, and your disciples, they couldn't cast out the demon. Can you? And he says, what do you mean if I can? Of course I can. Anything is possible for him who believes. And that's when the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to believe even more. I believe, but I help me to believe e- even more. And so Jesus ends up casting this demon out of this boy, and completely changes the future uh, of this boy's life. And then they go into the house, Jesus and his disciples. And this is what the disciples ask Jesus in verse 29. They say, and he told them, so they ask in verse 28, why couldn't we drive it out? Meaning, why couldn't we dispel and cast out this demon? Verse 29, he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now I want to chase a little rabbit here because how many, look in your Bibles, how many of your Bibles have the word fasting? How many of your Bibles do not have the word fasting in that verse? Yeah, so it's kind of weird. Like, is one of them wrong and one of them right? Did one of us get kind of a bad batch of Bibles? You know, like they're the defective ones. They've been recalled. No, here's what's going to happen. We're going to chase this rabbit. This doesn't have anything to do with fasting, really. But I want to, I, I want to equip you to understand how the Word of God is put together. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. We believe that um, men were inspired by the Holy Spirit and as they wrote to real people in real situation, the Holy Spirit was inspiring them. So these men, um, they wrote their letters, um, which eventually became the Scripture. And so God was inspiring them so that the Bible would be with us for all time and inform the church for generations and generations and generations. Okay. Um, so we believe the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, but the Bible didn't just drop out of heaven. You know, some old priest wasn't walking through somewhere, beach somewhere, whatever, and just, oh, hey, there's the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That seems good. Let's go with that. It does not work like that. Um, It was pieced together as God-inspired human men, and it fits together beautifully, okay? Now, you can't go to a museum and see the actual piece of paper that Mark wrote those words on. The actual piece of paper that he had in front of him with the actual pen and ink. You can't go to Israel and find that. You can't go to... New York and find that. You can't go to the Smithsonian and find that. That piece of paper doesn't exist. Okay. What we have are copies. Okay. Because, you know, they're writing letters on poor paper with poor ink. They just didn't survive. But copies have survived. Right? And so there are are thousands and thousands of these copies of the gospel in Mark and Philippians and Ephesians and all those kinds of different things. Now, um, I'm not an expert in this field, but my sister in law is. She wouldn't call her herself an expert, but she's been trained in it, has a d- multiple degrees, and it. it's unbelievable. And if you have questions about this, this stuff is kind of interesting to you, then I'd encourage you to seek her out, and she'd answer almost every one of your questions, I'm sure. No pressure on her. Um, but um, some of you, you're like, I don't really care. I believe the Bible. My pastor says I can trust the Bible, so I'm good. You know? And if that, you're in that, Case awesome you want to know more about it then that's awesome too we want to help you but when it comes to Mark chapter 9 verse 29 here's the deal okay if you stacked up all the copies that we have of Mark chapter 9 verse 29 a huge stack of them so a huge number and also some really really early ones meaning copies that were written not too long after Mark actually wrote on his piece of paper many of them have the word fasting okay So that this this one doesn't come out by prayer and fasting. So the word fasting is in there. But then some of the other copies that we have, the ones that we trust um, in a high high degree, some of those copies don't have the word fasting. And so the thing about the Bible, it wasn't written in English. Translators who give their life to these kinds of things, they want you to know what's going on. They want you to know... That some of the copies, in fact a lot of the copies, most of the copies have the word and fasting. But some of those that we trust the most don't and they just want you to know. So that's why in my Bible you see on the screen it has it in brackets. Your Bible, look, it may have an asterisk. How many of your Bibles have an asterisk after the word prayer? Right, So what, happened, what does that mean? It means go down to the footnote. When you go down to the footnote right now, it's going to say something like um, other manuscripts or other MSS have the word fasting. They just want you to know. Nobody's trying to pull a trick on you. No, there's no committee somewhere that's saying let's trick all these people into believing about Jesus even though all the evidence doesn't suggest anything. No, in fact, when they make archaeological finds that are credible, they will update your Bible with that in light of that new, new evidence that they have. So the Bible is the authoritative word of God, and we believe that not just by faith, but a tremendous amount of evidence. And so so some of your Bibles have the word fasting, others don't. But I want to say that maybe I think it's what's here, and I want to give you a theological reason. Look back up in that passage. You'll see that, that they can't cast out the demon, right? But they had been able to cast out demons before, even earlier in Mark. They had been able to cast out demons. But for some reason, this one, they can't get it to to be removed from this boy. Now, I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking that if you're trying to cast out a demon and it's not coming, what are you going to do? You're going to pray. You're going to say... You know, God, we're trying, we're doing what we think is right, but can you bring more power? Can you do this? Can you heal this boy? Can you cast this demon out? I'm thinking that prayer is going to be the obvious piece of this equation. We're having trouble casting out this demon. Let's pray some more and then maybe that will help. But fasting, maybe that's something that that they wouldn't have thought of themselves. And that's why Jesus says, listen, that kind, it only comes out by prayer, which you did. But also fasting. And so I just want to suggest to you as a church that I think fasting has a powerful effect when it comes to spiritual warfare. It gives us some leverage in that battle. You know, if if you got a, a struggle right now, you got this thing that you want to quit, but you can't quit. You told God that you would stop it. God, I promise, I promise, I promise. I promise times 10. I promise to the 50th power. I promise I will never, ever do that again. God, I promise I'll never yell at my kids like that ever again, I promise. I'm telling you right now, I'll never do that. I'll never explode at my wife ever again like I did right then. I I promise I'll never, never do that. And then you come home from work and whoops, I mean, you didn't want to. You tried your hardest not to you have that thing in your life that you just, and you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you are coming to the church, you're serving, you're doing everything you know to do, but you just can't. I would suggest that maybe it's not just a, your flesh, it's not just the desire that's in your heart. There may be a scheme that's against you and fasting might be the leverage that you need to break free from that thing. You want to go to a deeper place of faith. You, you got people in your life and you look at them and go, man, I, I want to love Jesus like that lady. I want to believe like them. I want, to, I want to grow like that. I want to go to a deeper place of faith. And I really, really want to. But you just can't seem to get yourself to that place. You can't seem to get the, the ball rolling, the train moving. It may be because there's a scheme by the enemy against you. And fasting might be the extra leverage that you need to break through that into a new place. Fasting has a powerful spiritual effect, especially for spiritual warfare. And I want to show you why. This is where we'll end. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. we're jumping in the middle of the chapter with verse 9 but Paul has been talking about this thorn in the flesh which been has been given to him and it's been granted by God meaning God is not taking away it away but Satan is using it against Paul and so Paul prays that God would take it away but God's not going to and this is what Jesus says to Paul verse 9 but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power or your version of the bible may say my power is perfected in weakness The power of God is perfect or complete when we are weak. You remember back in Matthew chapter 4, after it says that Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, what did it say? It said Jesus was hungry. I promise, if you haven't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights, you are going to be weak. You're going to be weak mentally. You're going to be weak emotionally. You're going to be weak physically. So Jesus enters into this battle with, hello, Satan himself. This is not some kind of spiritual underling, you know, that was just sent in the spur of the moment. Satan himself coming against Jesus. Jesus goes into that probably as weak as Jesus ever was before he went to the cross. Physically. But maybe what 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 says is true. That when we're weak is when the power of God is the strongest in us. You ever been around a kid and you see this kid, like he's trying to lift something or she's trying to lift something and their arms are not big enough, you know, their little stubby arms trying to pick up something really big and and they're struggling with it and and you try to come and help because you're a nice person and they're like, hey, no, 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 I want to do it myself, right? Anybody else been there besides me? Please raise your hands, okay, so that I know that you're getting this. And you're like, okay. Yeah, do it yourself. You can do it. But they just struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. And what you know the whole time is all they have to do is turn to you and say, I'm weak, I need your help. Or I can't do this myself, I need your help. And it makes all the room for you to come and apply your strength to that situation. I think that's part of what this verse means. It means when we are weak and we admit that weakness, It makes room for the power and presence of God in our lives, that he would apply his strength to our situations, And fasting, it it just wakes us up to that reality that we maybe are more weak than we think, that we're trying to accomplish spiritual goals that we can't accomplish on our own with our human thinking and our human ways and our human wisdom. And maybe we need to step aside and say, I can use some help here. And not only could I use some help, but can you do this for me because I'm not able to do it for myself? That's when the power of God can be perfected and complete in our lives, completely applied to you. And to me. But as long as we feel so adamant about living on bread alone, on our strength alone, what we can do and provide for ourselves alone, the power of God may be limited in our lives because we just never simply admitted the truth that we're weak and He's strong. And as a church, I want to set aside December 5th through 9th to just raise our hands up to Jesus and go, we are weak. We can't do it. You know, I stood in front of our core team in one of our first official meetings and I just said, this is a terrible, this is terrible leadership. Don't lead your business like this. But I just said, I want you guys to know that as the pastor of this church, I don't have what it takes. And I told him, you should be incredibly thrilled about that. And so I'm saying the same thing to you now, 400 people. I don't have what it takes. To be the kind of church we wanna be, one filled with the power and presence of God, I don't have what it takes. And neither do you. We just wanna step aside and say, we are weak and you are strong. So come be strong. So December 5th through 9th, we're going to skip lunch that week. And I'm asking you to pray about it. And if you're not physically able to do it, then I totally understand. Like if your doctor would be mad at you if you skipped lunch for five days, don't skip lunch. But if your doctor would be semi-cool with it, then I say let's tap into the powerful weapon that God has given us together and break through any kind of spiritual attack against us and consecrate ourselves as the kind of people we want to be. And the other thing I want to say as we close, maybe you're like me and you didn't hear a word that I said this morning because your heart is beating a million miles an hour. Because you know your relationship with God. There's something broken. And maybe you can just say what I said as a boy. Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. So let's pray together. And if that's you this morning, I just want to give you that opportunity. If you know that there's something wrong with your relationship with God, you've not, you're far off. Even though you're close to church, you're far off from God. I would just encourage you just to cry out to him and say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I want to commit my life to you. I admit my sin and I believe in Jesus and here's my life. Save me. And the Bible says that when you do that, God will hear you and you'll be born again. You were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do bring the dead to life. And we just want to say that we want to be the kind of church that that happens all the time. That's a regular part of what happens here. So we just cry out to you and we say that we can't accomplish that Ourselves. That is a supernatural work. And we want to be a family that's plugged into the supernatural life of the Son of God. So make us that way. In Jesus' name, amen.